So I'm over the moon to announce that we've got a new sponsor. It's BDO, who are the trusted accountancy and advisory firm that you may know. BDO is the perfect partner for our podcast, as we both love to help entrepreneurs build high-value businesses, and BDO are always there to help advise people like you on how to succeed. I had the pleasure of meeting a few of the team at the Publican Awards, and I found out they were massive fans of the podcast, were obsessed with the success of our industry, and also a million miles away from the grey-suited drones that you usually deal with. To check out more about BDO and how they can help you get to the top, go to bdo.co.uk. Supersonic! 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 From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The rocket fuel podcast for food, drink and hospitality businesses everywhere. Listen up, tell all your friends and share with your colleagues. Every single episode is packed full of tips, tricks and advice on how you can make your brand boom. So it's really early on a Tuesday morning and I'm in the wonderful Georgian House Hotel uh, where Adam uh, and the team look after me so well when I'm up in London and it's been a really early start. So around 5am to get up to interview and check technical staff and prepare for the interview with the marketing professor of our generation. So if the 60s and 70s had Kotler, then we've got Mark Ritson and we're so glad that he's a champion for the industry, speaking the truth at all possible opportunities and also pulling no punches when he's talking about other marketers, brands, agencies and business decisions that he just thinks can be all the way from brilliant to absolute insanity. I was so lucky that the gods of Wi-Fi were pretty much on our side Also, I managed to lose the last five minutes, which was some audience questions and the Mark Out of 10 feature. So Mark is going to respond to that and I'll be able to read out the answers on his behalf because I've taken up far too much of his time already. So a wonderful chat all about marketing, the state of marketing, his beliefs. We also touch on Gary Vee and we touch on the MBA an incredible course that he's actually promoting and worked on for a whole year. It's really life-changing, and I'm saying that from proof from a couple of people, you know who you are, that said that, yeah, the the MBA with Mark Ritson, the short course, you know, for 1,200 quid or whatever, um, was just life-changing for them and gave them confidence and really helped them be a better marketer. It gives me the most, uh, I don't know, academic and uh, stressy of exams pleasure ever um, to introduce the world's most adjunct professor, Mr. Mark Ritson. Hello, Mark. Good uh, good morning at your end. Yeah, good morning for me. And I was so glad the clocks went forward because I think we were going to have to do it at like 
6 a.m. or 5 a.m. So I'm so glad that everything worked out and 7 a.m. wasn't too bad. Um, and we've just had the, the wonders of technology. So, yeah, hopefully the gods of Wi-Fi are on our side um, for the next wee while. Um, so thanks so much for, for doing this. Um, just uh, one night I was I was on a train uh, coming back and I'd, I'd had a... A couple of uh, a couple of drinks, and um, one of my mates texted me. And he's like, "Do you know who you should talk to on your podcast, Mark Ritson?" And I was like, "He'll never do it." <laughs> um, and then you did. <laughs> so, thank you so much for doing that. It's an absolute joy to have you on. <laughs> um, so, I cut. You know, so many questions come in for you um, from the listeners that we've got. And um, you know, clearly, you know, all although you're miles and miles and miles away, um, you know, you're you're making an impact, you know, all over the world, but definitely in the UK and you know, people are always sharing and resharing and uh, you know, checking into everything that you're saying. So, you know, um, you know, the column lives on and the 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 LinkedIn um sort of content's living on as well, which is absolutely fantastic. But what I was wanting to do was just go back a bit and just sort of figure out how you got to where you got to and, and what all the, the jumps were along the way, if you like. Yeah, it's, um, I guess it's 25 years pretty much. Um, so it's getting a, a fair old amount of time now. Um, I was a marketer all along. So I suppose that's what's unusual when you go to these conferences, everyone else shares their story of, you know, what they did originally and then how they became a marketer. And that's all I ever wanted to do. So when I left, uh, um, uh, sixth form in the in the 80s I went to, to do a marketing degree because that's what I wanted to do and then I, that's that's been it from the start so I guess it's sort of a, a bunch of different institutions it's it's certainly Lancaster University where I went to do my my undergrad in marketing because it was the it was apparently from what I'd learned at the time the place to study marketing and I think that was absolutely true and it's mm-hmm. only looking back you realize how good a marketing department it was and then I won a scholarship to go and do an MBA at Wharton in America. And I was actually too young to get on the MBA program, even though I had the funding. And so they kind of put me in a holding pattern for a couple of years and said, look, you've got a place, but you just have to wait. Um, and, and while I was waiting, Lancaster offered me a PhD scholarship in marketing way, you know, far too early. I was 22 at the time. And so I did my PhD in marketing really early. And then the Wharton guys came back and said, hey, you've got all this funding. Do you want to come and do part of your PhD at Wharton, which at the time was the number one business school in the world, and it's still pretty, you know, between it and Harvard and MIT, they're pretty close. And so, yeah, I got to America and to Philadelphia for a couple of years and and sort of saw a different breed of marketing professor there who was teaching MBAs but clearly working in in marketing as well at a high level. And that that was kind of what I decided I wanted to do. So when I finished the PhD, I took a job in America at the University of Minnesota. Then after a few years of teaching, was headhunted back to London Business School for about seven years. And then I had a little dalliance with MIT, and I taught there off and on for about three years. And then finally ended up in uh, in Melbourne at Melbourne Business School because my wife's an Aussie and she wanted to be in Oz. And I guess the only other institution that needs a mention in all of that is probably LVMH. So LVMH is the big holding group that owns, obviously, Louis Vuitton and Moet mm-hmm. and Hennessy. They're in the name, but about 70 other luxury brands. And just after I got to LBS, they headhunted me to go and basically be their 
in-house branding guy. So I worked across their portfolio for the next 15 years doing teaching and consulting and working with the brands. And that was probably the, that was the start at a relatively young age. I was still only about 30 of working at a high level with CEOs of big brands. And that's where I've been ever since. And, you know, I've always wondered because, I, you know, I'm not sure I went to the best university in the world. So, you know, um, I went to the University of Paisley and, you know, was at Strathclyde yeah, before that. Not a bad school. But, um, yeah, well, I think it did quite well. Punched above its weight, I think, you know. Um, but I always wonder, you know, what is the difference, you know, between these ones that are, you know, seen as the best in the world and the ones that are maybe in the middle and the ones that are yeah. slightly down the bottom. I mean, is it a seismic difference when you go there? What What is different? It's a great question and it, and it is different. And and it, at least I can only speak to my area of, of basically MBAs, you know, marketing is part of a MBA programs. I've never taught undergrads. I've only ever taught, you know, MBAs who typically tend to be 25, 26 onwards. Um, and the difference is is very. I mean, I mean, I guess MIT is the is the highest. Ra- well, LBS or MIT have both been the number one business school in the world in one ranking or another. So, what's the difference between those schools and the fiftieth or eightieth or a hundredth or the schools beneath that level? And and the simple answer is the dirty secret is the difference is the student. So it only takes, I'll speak frankly, Mark, it only takes one moron in a room of 50 to ruin a a class. And as the moron quotient increases, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the thing just turns to shit. And so no matter how good the program is, you learn more from your fellow students than you do from your professor. And so at MIT, to give you some idea, they had 14 qualified successful applicants for every seat. And so they interviewed them all and just picked the nicest, most. I mean, they're already amazing 14. They just picked the nicest of the 14 from around the world. So you're just spoiled for choice. So the difference, I'll be honest with you, is sometimes professors, but I've seen great professors at, at shitty schools, and I've seen a lot of shitty professors at great schools. The, difference <laughs> is the, the students are fantastic. And, and the, you, know, you know, that's the dirty secret. There was a famous old story about the dean of Harvard Business School being asked, you know, what was his, what was the secret of the success of Harvard? And he said, look, we get the world's best and brightest. And two years later, we produce the world's best and brightest. So I mm. think that's, that's what's missing um, from lower tier schools. And if you can get into a top school, and look, if you can get into an American school, I mean, this is a weird world where Americans invented the MBA. So that's where the heritage is. The difference mm. is, is really quite large. And then, you know, what about the the marketing week stuff? So, how how long have you been doing that, and how did that all come about? Well, I've been doing marketing week for nearly ten years, and before that, yeah. I did marketing for about ten years, and and mm-hmm. a weekly column. And it started. I went and did a conference in nineteen ninety nine. It was either Bucharest or Budapest, but I was very drunk, and I can't remember exactly <laughs> which city, to this day where I was. But the head of uh, the editor of Marketing Week, uh, a guy at the time called Craig Smith, had saw me talk and said, "Would you do a column along the same lines?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'd have a go." And he said, "Well, you know, who do you read in in marketing?" And I said, "I wouldn't read anyone in marketing; they're horrendous." And they were, you know, they wrote shit. They just they wrote <laughs> obvious stuff, and it was just poor, you know. And I said to him, not joking, me, I said, "I'll I'll write, but I, my whole intention is to get fired as soon as possible." because you can't, you know, put up with the shit that comes your way as a result of the columns. And that was, you know, to begin with, that was hard because, you know, I was still getting going in the discipline. 
but I really tried to shove it up as many people as possible. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, it was, you know, it's at the time, uh, you know, the marketing press at the turn of the century was like, everyone was great. Every campaign was a success. Marketers left yeah. with no job to go to, but they were really wonderful. And yeah. it really contrasted greatly with the state of the discipline. And so, you know, to begin with, the response was pretty, you know, in marketing at least was like, you can't say that. And I, you know, and I said, well, yes, I can. And you can, you can certainly write back. And then after 10 years at marketing, there was a, an editor at marketing we called Mark Schwakey. He was a great wheeler dealer. And Schwakey tried to recruit me because they were, you know, age old rivals, marketing and marketing with. Yeah. And um, as it turns out, marketing hadn't been paying my invoices for about 12 months. And so I said, <laughs> look, normally I wouldn't, I wouldn't switch, but, you know, I'm going to switch. You just match the pay and I'll switch. And, mm. and that became very fortuitous because Marketing Week went on a really went on a tear and became much more successful. And shortly afterwards, marketing was disbanded and merged into campaign. So it was very, mm. I was very lucky. I said I was very lucky. And Marketing Week, although I've written for it still for less time than marketing, is the place where it's it's really worked for me because they've given me, you know, they they haven't got a paywall first of all, which is super important, and they um yeah. they really have let me do whatever I want, which is a rare thing in this world. Yeah. And then, you know, what about your MBA course then? Because, do you know what, I've had my finger on the trigger a few mm. times to think about, you know, sort of doing it. And um, I've actually had a few messages this week of people saying that they've done it and they thought it was incredible. It changed their life. Uh, I think Liam at Bleecker was, uh, Bleecker Street Burger was, was one of them, um, one, of, one of the people that did it. Yeah. So, you know, um, it seems to be a roaring success and it feels more modern than you know your cims of this world and all that sort of stuff so you know what what's going on with that and what gave you the idea it's a it's been a long story mark what happened in a nutshell though was um i've been teaching the so in an mba course there's a you know it's a two-year full-time degree in a proper business school and in the first yeah. year you do what's called the core courses so you get your 12 weeks of marketing along with finance and strategy and hr everything else and I've taught that at MIT and at London Business School. You know, I've taught it all over. And um, one of the thoughts I had was there's an awful lot of marketers who are mid, late 20s, early 30s with no formal training, about 50%, in fact, of marketers with no formal training, um, who aren't going to have the time or money to do two years at a top business school but would dearly want the training. And so I basically turned what was my – MBA course into an online course and I, I the success was in completely ignoring everyone that worked in online training so if you look at all these online digital training courses they're horrendous you know what I mean they they mm. they look like they're al-qaeda videos you know what I mean like there's a guy <laughs> sat in an office surrounded by books and it's you know so I, I really did set out to build it like it's a classroom and we do some live stuff as well you know across the mm -hmm. 12 weeks and it was my syllabus and it's the you know i used harvard readings and just took an mba course and made it really cool and we use green screen technology so it is pretty groovy and mm. it was a big punt because i mean i do i mean i had a very successful consulting business um and it must have cost me four or five hundred thousand quid of wow. i spent a year making it basically in lost income and we really had no clue. I mean, my I did all the research on price. I did it properly. I, did, I applied my own works. We, we priced it up, and we did pricing research, and we looked at the target. And I tell you, it's spooky how, how on the numbers we were with it. Um, mm. And, yeah, it's been a roaring success. We do about um, 
Uh, look, I'd say we probably average now about 2,500 managers a year do the course all over the world. You can do it anywhere. Um, and we got a net promoter of plus 75, you know, and it sells itself to some degree in the sense that, as you've experienced, it, we if we, you know, we just had a, we had a German for the first time. We never had any Germans. We had a German <laughs> do the course in September, and now we've got eight Germans. You know what I mean? And that okay. tends to be the pattern is once we yeah. get – half a dozen doing it in a company or in a country, it just grows exponentially. So we're growing about 30, 35% every course. And it's, you know, it's 1200 quid. So, and, and you do it all from your, your laptop. And, you know, it, frankly, it, if you really were to push me, I'd tell you, it's better than a, a it's better than the core courses in marketing taught at the top business schools. Cause I'm yeah. doing it. And it's also, it's all online. So we've really, yeah, and the thing that's really surprised me, honestly, I mean, I don't want to sell it too hard, but what's been interesting is I saw it as kind of like a discount alternative to doing a full master's course in marketing. But it's clear to me now that the the experience is far more profound and impactful uh, delivered, you know, virtually than it is in a classroom. And that's been the real, I mean, you know, it's really been a surprise to me the impact it's had on so many. We've changed so many people's lives. I met a guy in London two weeks ago, and he was he was literally crying. Um, I did a talk at LinkedIn's offices, and and he was waiting for me afterwards. And and I said, "Are you okay?" You know, he sat. Everyone else had gone, and he said, "I just want to thank you and Mola." And the thing that we it, we've really pushed out on is confidence. There's a lot of good marketers out there that aren't sure if they're any good, and have really been unsure that they're doing the right thing. And we, we get it, we measure confidence now. We track it at about, about 95% of our people say it made them more confident in their marketing skills after the course. And that's the well, thing that, you that, see. That's so interesting, right? Because, um, you know, I, I mean, as you maybe know, you know, I'm sort of predominantly food and drink based, you know, yeah. and the, the restaurant sector, the, the marketers are just the, the punch bags, you know, and they don't have the, the confidence because it's ops led. And, you know, they're getting beat up. And even if they do have confidence at the beginning, a lot of the time it gets knocked out of them because it's like sales are down, do a discount, get on with it, you know, yeah. and you become like a promotions jockey. So, you know, just having that confidence to actually stand up in a boardroom or a meeting or in your boss's office or whatever and just show, you know, have the backup of that. I think that would be absolutely priceless for people. Yeah, and absolutely right, Mark. And it starts with the marketers themselves who, you know, before they stand up, they have to believe themselves that they know what they're doing. And and that's that's where we start. And you find that about a third of the content, they go, yeah, I'm just glad that I knew that and it's right. A third of it, I knew it, but I didn't know what it was called. And a third of it is new to me. And, and now I, I have these pieces. And then the bit that really works is it structures properly. It's a good MBA course in marketing tells the story of marketing. It's kind of like a train track. And so all these separate pieces all suddenly lock in together like you're studying biology or something. And suddenly people come out of it and go, shit, I, I totally get this. And, and you know, marketing isn't simple. I don't think it's rocket science either. But it's mm-hmm. no wonder we're short of confidence and skill when half of our marketers have no mm-hmm. training in it. So let's give them some training. It's not, you know, what? it's not rocket science. Well, I think that's the biggest thing in in, in- what I'm always trying to do, you know, if I'm mentoring teams or, you know, I'm I'm doing my speaking or whatever it is, I think it's just to try and save people years of pain to just go, look, this is largely how it all plugs together. 
And yep. it was one of the most beneficial things when I was at lastminute.com. Um, the guys were fantastic there, you know, letting you go and see your media agency, the, the creative agency, this, that, and and, I've, and having almost like crash courses with them. And then once you figured out how it all, because actually I never got taught that at the University of Paisley. You know, you got taught bits and bobs and this and that, but I'm using three or five percent of yeah. what I learned there in my actual job. So that was a godsend when someone said, look, this is how you play it. You know, and it's it's like golf in a lot of ways, whatever, you know, the approach and the, the system and the discipline is sort of the same, but there's a whole bunch of varieties of, you know, shot length and club, if you keep the analogy going. But yeah, no, no, it's you, so helpful when you just know that, you know. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't blame marketers completely. I mean, Marketing education is terrifying in the UK in the sense that it's mostly taught by people that haven't done it. And, and you know, I used to be one of them mm. years ago. And that's, you know, it's my, my dad is, is a man of simple tastes, always says to me, well, if I was a professor of surgery, I need to have done surgery before I start teaching other people about it. How come all these guys are teaching yeah. marketing and they've never done it in their lives? And he's right. So I, I do think there's a, yeah. there's a finger to be pointed as well at marketing education, which is not by any means fit for purpose either. So you can kind of blame both. I mean, I don't mind. It's it's left me with a lovely niche, but it's a, it's an interesting situation we're in right now where we've got marketers who don't think they need to be trained. And even the ones that have training don't really feel like they have been trained. So it's a, it's an interesting time. Yeah, no, definitely. And then, so how do you feel the teaching of marketing has changed then over you know, the time you've been doing it? And I guess that's both subject matter and the the students coming through. Well, it's to understand or to answer that question, you've got to look at marketing, I think, in three different ways. So I think marketing is, is broadly, it can be looked at as, first of all, understanding, diagnosis, research, working out what's going on with the customer. Yeah, that, that's like our first challenge. Our second challenge is then strategy, marketing strategy and brand strategy, which is working out who we're going after, what's our position, what's the objectives, etc. And then the third part are choosing the tactics, whether it be communications or product or price, whatever, to deliver the strategy and, and make money. And I think there's a challenge with education, which is the tactics are changing, you know, dramat- not dramatically, but pretty regularly. Um, you know, 10 years ago, if we went back to 2009, you know, Facebook had just begun advertising. Google was still relatively nascent. These things are relatively, you know, uh, they, they move pretty quickly. And so staying on top of tactics is difficult. And it's essential if you're teaching young, you know, undergraduates in marketing because they don't do any strategy to begin with. They're just going to do tactics. You know, teaching media planning mm. 2019 versus 2009, never mind 1999, is mind-bogglingly different. But having said that, the concepts of marketing strategy and understanding customers haven't changed one iota. And in fact, my brand management course is based on Neil McElroy's memo uh, when he created the brand manager role in 1931. And if you're an idiot, you think, well, that must be out of date. But if you get marketing, you understand that the, the strategic role of marketing hasn't changed one iota. And so th- there's a really important switch there, which is tactics are always changing and you're always opening your mind to new things. But strategy and diagnosis and, and how they interplay together uh, should and are the same as they were when Peter Doyle was teaching 20 years ago or, you know, going all the way back to the great American professors of yesteryear. So I think that's the problem we have is we, we have outdated tactical courses 
and we have kind of started teaching digital strategy and all this crap, which doesn't literally exist. I mean, I've seen digital marketing courses, you know what I mean, where they go, well, you've got to segment the digital market and you've got to target the digital market. Just take marketing and apply it, you know, to digital case studies. It's just marketing. Mm. So, so there's a real sort of schizophrenia there where, yes, we have at the center of it these tactics which are ever-changing, but we have strategy and understanding of consumer behavior, which is, you know, constant. And where does marketing start and finish for you? Well, I mean, in the, it, it's probably helpful to split it up into, in the textbooks, it's meant to start with an unmet need and, you know, and then go from there. In my experience, I've, ne- I've actually never, ever encountered that ever. In reality, mm. we start with some form of pre-existing product or service, and then we try and sort it out, you know? And so that's an important point, right? So the textbooks are usually highly theoretical on this point. Normally, we're given a product or a service. And in my world, I'm a consultant. Um, you, you don't, it isn't working. Otherwise, they wouldn't have called you. So it's normally yeah. a, a product or service that doesn't work, and we've got to try and work out why. And you go back to the customers, and you look at it from the customer point of view, and you change, and you tweak, and you alter. So I think the reality is that marketing, in theory, should really be driving everything. In practice, it drives what we can, and it's never it's never the same twice over. You know what I mean? So there's always operational, mm-hmm. profit-based, logistical implications of what you can and can't do, and, you, and mark, mark, good marketers work within that. But let's stay with the theoretical vision of it. In theory, marketing should be there from day one, and, and it certainly never ends because we're never happy. You know, we're always, even after the sale, we're trying to understand if the sale was successful. You know what I mean? So it's certainly mm-hmm. never ending once we get it going. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I've always um, thought about, you know, brand versus marketing in the sense of when I was at lastminute.com, my title was brand manager, but I was basically a market manager and I didn't really understand brand until I met my sort of brand guru mentor guy, a, a chap called Robert Bean. Um, so, you know, with that, you know, brand and marketing, you know, sort of side of things, What's your your thoughts on brand purpose um, in the social media age? What's going on there? It's a it's a big fashion at the moment. To well, I believe, and I'm certainly quite um, critical of brand purpose. I believe there's an awful lot of marketers that are embarrassed to sell things, embarrassed to make good quality products, and embarrassed generally that their life involves marketing a bar or a drink or a candy bar or a you know a gym or an airline it just doesn't it doesn't pass the dinner party test and so it's become fashionable (laughs) it's become fashionable to say no 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 i don't i don't i don't market beer or coffee i'm i'm improving the world's communities you know one cup at a time and all that yeah one one cup at a time yeah that's the classic isn't it and 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 the problem with that is a couple (laughs) of things so first of all customers don't give a shit about that now they do give a shit if you ask them in a questionnaire would you prefer a company that mistreats animals or a company that doesn't? You know what I mean? Like clearly we're going to get a, a result there. But all the research yeah. is done in real time and looks at paying more for a company that, that behaves better than a name, unfortunately, very rarely shows a difference. The second thing is the companies themselves aren't actually doing this. You know, Starbucks, which proclaims itself to be, you know, improving the world's communities one cup at a time, is one of the world's worst companies for tax maximization and efficiency. 
in the sense that it's paid a, a fraction of what I think most people would acknowledge is a fair rate. They're not doing anything illegal. They're, they're doing something very astute in reducing their tax. The point is they're not doing anything wrong, but you can't claim to be supporting communities if you don't pay your full whack of tax, and, and happily so. Mm. And then the last bit is just competitors. There, there isn't any difference between all of these incredibly bland purpose statements, you know, make today great, start something today, tomorrow begins today. It's a joke. It's a joke. And so, mm. <laughs> you know, what it comes down to is when you criticize these companies, it's, oh, yeah, you like evil companies. I don't think any company should be evil. I think companies have an absolute responsibility to treat animals um, all people of all different minorities and cultures equally um, behave in an environmentally respectful way. It's just not the thing that you want to put in your positioning because ultimately it makes you look like everyone else. You don't deliver it and customers don't care. So I think that's, you know, that's the point is it's become a trendy thing and it's replaced this idea that we can actually position on something which is quite high order What's more relevant to customers speaks more to differentiation and is something the company can actually deliver. I think Starbucks is a fine company. I go there frequently for my coffee, but I don't go there to support the world's communities. You know, I go there for other reasons, and that should be what positioning is. And I think there's an opportunity cost to wasting your bullets talking about that when you could be talking about things that are, you know, more relevant and deliverable. No, I, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, it's it's interesting. We've been doing a few sort of, you know, I do like a brand DNA offer that as a as a consultant, and um, you know, there's there's been quite a lot of chat about you know purpose and and all the rest of it. But people are coming to you now with briefs saying, uh, "I want to be the Tom shoes of the pub industry," yeah. and you're like, "What?" You know, it's kind of like everyone being the Uber or something else. And it's just like, you know, if it is back to your point when you say about an unmet need, um, most of the time you're actually, you know, getting briefs in where people are in the shit, as you say, or um, they're actually just trying to rip off a competitor that's doing it better and they want to better it. So, you know, it's just disingenuous from the get go. You know, so yeah. it's really difficult. So, yeah, I, I think there's very few organisations out there like having an amazing product um, have got a true purpose. And if you're starting your purpose once you're 100 years old, you know, it, it might, you know, seem a little bit plastic, I suppose. Um, just, just on that point then, you know, a company in the UK that you probably saw was Boston Tea Party. And um, they uh, said that putting... The planet before their profits has actually cost them a quarter yeah. of a million pounds in sales. And what's your sort of thought on that? I mean, it was a brave move. Yeah, but that's that's a proper example of what we would call purpose. So, you know, if if purpose doesn't cost you money and come before profit, then it isn't really purpose. So, there's a lot of you know very poor work out there saying, oh, when you're purposeful, you make more money. But but that's not the point. If the point if your point of purpose is it delivers more profit and I can show you that, you know, shooting, you know, baby ducks is going to make you more money, then you're going to do it. It's not purpose that's driving you, it's profit. And I think when you get those examples like that coffee place where they, they really did, they lost 250 grand, I think was the figure, right? I think that yeah. illustrates that that's a company that's driven by purpose. That isn't just saying, I'm, you know, and Patagonia are the one we always talk about. 
because when they got the tax yeah. break from Trump, they gave it away. You know, so the, the, there are companies that are genuinely the purpose comes first, and the product delivers the purpose. That's a purpose business, and they do exist. But companies that are purpose washing in order to be trendy and cool are always going to let themselves down. Yeah, and just on Patagonia, I was in Leeds uh, the other day up with a client, and the Patagonia shop was closed, and it had a neighbour outside saying, um, uh, "We're all of our staff are away helping uh, other communities and charity, and then we're going up a mountain or whatever." Yeah. You know, it was just like, "Wow, they're they're really doing it." Oh no, they, um, which I thought was they really are, incredible. They really are the real deal, Mark. I mean, I, f- I think one of the big economic organisations wanted Patagonia vests for their next conference, and they just said, "Nah, we're we're not going to do that because we think you're a bunch of shit." Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then, and then, and then people That's said, good. It's... you're only doing that for publicity. And, and then the person that revealed it said, actually, no, they really didn't want me to tell anyone, but I just couldn't resist. You know what I mean? They, they're properly driven by something bigger than making money. And that's great to see. It's just not what we keep talking about in marketing. You know what I mean? From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the good folk at BDO. BDO have been long-term supporters of the hospitality sector and they are really passionate about supporting innovative entrepreneurs on their journeys and they also want to give you the right advice and support to grow your business. Just in case you don't know, BDO provides tailored advice to the sector across corporate finance, due diligence, tax and all accounting matters. BDO work tirelessly to give their clients the advice that they need when they need it to succeed. For more information on BDO and how they can take your business to the top, go to bdo.co.uk. Hashtag ad. So if we go a bit macro then and, and just look at trends and um, you know what's happening out there in marketing right now, you know, what's where where do you think it's sitting in terms of you know channels focus and then I guess we can get into you know all the does offline work anymore and yada yada um but it would be good to understand that well I think we're in an interesting place it seems as if we're we are entering a post-digital world in the sense that everything is digital and therefore a lot of the hoo-ha and particularly the tactics that have sort of become the predominant focus for marketers they um they seem to be now disappearing a little bit. I mean, we're all we're all living marketing in the digital world, but the idea that we have to talk incessantly about digital stuff is dis- I think is beginning to disappear. And what's great about that is it's leading mm-hmm. again for the first time in ten years. I think to companies beginning to ask questions about strategic issues such as long term, short term, targeting mass, positioning purpose. So I do think we're we're entering a phase where there's a bit more nuance and a bit more strategy coming back in onto the onto the table. See, my my obsession is really with what I call tactification, which is that most marketers just work on tactics. That's all they do. And really, as we've talked about earlier, tactics are the third and final stage in the process. Without the right strategy and without the right diagnosis, tactics aren't going to work. So I, I think that's a super important moment for for marketing that we're entering, which is I do think we're getting back to a more strategic set of questions, which is great to see. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely what I've experienced in most 
jobs that I've been in, um, which is, you know, the sales are down in the last 15 minutes. What are you going to do about it, son? You know, get us a poster. Whereas, I, you know, I think when I was at prep, for mm. example, they truly did what you said. You know, they just sat back from the whole thing. You know, they were marketing nine, 12 months out. Yep. So therefore, you're going to make better decisions as well, you know, um, rather than, you know, this Saturday's this Saturday's uh, lunchtime sales, uh, which is a big yep. thing. Um, so we covered discipline and marketing already. Um, so that's fine. Well, I guess going on to the next thing, I was thinking about um, you know data and versus gut feel. Now this has came up a few times in in the last couple of weeks. Actually, a few sort of small LinkedIn spats about um, you know using data. I was on a panel the other day as well, and it was a it was a insight conference so guess what they were pushing but it was just um to try and figure out the the the, the balance or the imbalance of that you know what what do you think marketers should be focusing on uh look i'm i'm a big one on on avoiding gut feel at all times mark so i i um ah. I, I don't like gut. If, I mean, if you work for, you know, if you're a founder or if you're a creator, if you're actually, you know, doing things from from the bones, as we say, then, yeah, your gut is mm-hmm. always, you know, a supremely valuable instrument. You know, I worked for brands where the creative director was very famous and we invariably followed him or her and and it was usually the right thing to do. Yep. But that's creativity or that's founders. I think when you're a marketer, the first thing you've got to do is take yourself completely out of the equation. Um, and I like shutting up and listening to customers that actually put their money down on the table and letting them be the starting point. Um, and, and in fact, I think marketing begins with market orientation and the recognition that you're not the customer and therefore your opinions are totally worthless. In fact, they're, they're dangerous is what they are. Because even if you were a consumer, you're now working for the company and totally biased. And even if you weren't totally biased, you're only one type of customer and you're missing the big picture. So, yeah, when I train brand managers, mm. the first thing I train them is to take their own, their gut and all of their lovely um, uh, personal ideas and to drop them at the door and then to rely on decent data, not necessarily big data, but data from real customers to build a proper picture of the market. That's good. That's interesting because I think um, it's just funny the organisation being in, like at lastminute.com, for example, you know, with, with Brent and Martha, you know, Brent didn't think about, you know, sort of data at all in the sense of customer research, etc. And there was always a view that I grew up with, I suppose, what, you know, if you didn't know, then, you know, you shouldn't be there kind of thing. But I think over time, I've, um, you know, had, had a bit more of a balance for sure. But that's really interesting to to see, you know, so as, as they say, stick to your knitting, you know, stick to the stick to the data and um, let the other people sort of uh, do, do the gut feel stuff. Um, so what about strongest brands and agencies out there? Is there anyone you're sort of loving at the moment or fanboying on or one of these things? Yeah, look, I just did a thing in America for DDB and, I, and, and Wendy Clark. And I think that's an agency that, you know, just remains supremely impressive you know it's got adam and eve who was that ddb did you say yeah ddb so they they in the uk they're uh, adam and eve ddb elsewhere they're ddb Mm -hmm. group it's still very confusing they're just rebranded but they're they've always been the um, rebrand was beautiful by the way yeah the The rebrand was absolutely beautiful 
Well, they should do a good job, shouldn't they, really? But, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, the first yeah. time I saw it was the day – I did the launch with Wendy in Miami with their global team, and um, I got sent a T-shirt the night before, and I, I had no idea what the T-shirt was, and it was the new logo, and I thought, ah, this is all right. Yeah, this is pretty good. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think they're an interesting one to watch. I mean, Adam and Eve are, are obviously brilliant in the U.K., but th- what DDB have done in the States is really impressive. So you've got to have them on your list. Of the big consultants, obviously Accenture Interactive and, and the purchase of Drogas is really puts them on the mm. you know on the league table now as being the consulting firm that's taking the agency business seriously. Um, so they'd be probably my two, I reckon. And then in terms of brands, uh, look, I'm a, I'm not that. So I see a big difference in brand and brand management. So brand is the natural gifts that the god of commerce has given you. And then brand management is the way you protect them and grow them, you know, using your skill and, and, and ability. And I'm much, obviously, more interested in the latter. So, I mean, my two favorite brands, I guess, are Coca-Cola um, because it's just so fucked, you know, you know, and, and yet they've managed yeah. to protect it, even grow it. I mean, God knows how they're doing it. You know what I mean? Like the, the age of... It's always going to be the number one cola brand, but the age of carbonated sugared beverages with caffeine in them is, you know, is swinging to an end before our eyes. And yet somehow Coke is squeezing out money and brand growth. I think that's amazing. Um, and the other one, Louis Vuitton. <laughs> so, I've, I, you know, I worked with LVMH for a long time. And even in my day, which would be going back, you know, I finished six, seven years ago now, there was, you know, Vuitton had got too big. Vuitton had got too common. Vuitton was everywhere. You couldn't keep growing Vuitton. They have, they just have. And it's a stunning achievement by that team to take a six, seven, eight billion euro brand like that and keep adding a double digit growth. It's a phenomenon that I think deserves a lot of credit. So they're the two that I just think they've really managed it well. And, and it must be incredibly hard. And of course, every year you pull it off, you give yourself a harder job the following year. So, um, Something that I don't know if you know how popular this was when it went round, um, but you wrote an article about um, Mr. Gary Vaynerchuk, and um, it, yeah, it just went a bit nuts on uh, on on LinkedIn. And also, I had not long before uh, done a podcast with him, ah. so lots of people were sending it to me saying, "Hey, what do you think of this fanboy and <laughs> all this stuff?" Um, so. You know, I'm I'm loving him. I'm sort of loving you, and it's like, what sort of happened there? Because you know, it was it was amazing to sort of read the you know the the, the sort of the anti or the 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 backlash. You know, how how did he come across your radar, and you know what what got your goat? I suppose. My apologies, Mark. We've just we've just been interrupted by my two year old who's made a star turn. There she goes. That's all right. Yeah, a little bit of, little bit of action. Hello, younger. <laughs> she's off. She's, she's moving quick. Look, I mean, nobody. I mean, he is the most famous marketer in the world. So we, you know, we all knew about Gary for a long time. Um, his influence yeah. is, you know, I think it's greater than the combined influence of every marketing professor in the world. And, and first of all, you have to say he is. A, I, I'm sure you found the same thing. He's a very amenable chap, very humble, t- terrific with almost every, mm. with everyone he meets, and he deserves great credit for that. So nothing wrong with the guy himself. I think he's a brilliant fella. And what he's achieved is impressive. It's just that he knows fuck all about marketing and advertising, and everything he says is stupid. That's my main problem with him. 
Okay. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on any yeah, of that? I mean, <laughs> he has no conception of the discipline of marketing. He has no idea about doing research. He doesn't know the difference between strategy and tactics. He doesn't understand the power of integrated media channels. Um, he gives out strategic advice that is completely unstrategic. He doesn't understand about differentiation and distinctiveness. No idea about qual or quant. Um, everything he says in his video blogs is intuitively impressive, but when you break it down, is bad advice. Um, and and you know, it's it's painful to see the impact he has because he he does a disservice to marketing because he's wrong a lot of the time. You know, you can't have people with that much power and influence with no idea about marketing and the principles of marketing wandering around. It's, it's, you know, it'll set us back 10 or 15 years, the damage he does to the discipline of marketing. You know, you know, if you look at his prescription for media in terms of, you know, you want Facebook, Instagram and, and the Super Bowl, you know, I mean, that's just dumb. And I'll tell you, I'll give you just one. I mean, there's a hundred examples. Let me just give you one. Facebook, mm-hmm. if you ask Facebook. Facebook will tell you that if you have the budget, then the uh, optimal way to get the most out of Facebook is to integrate it with other media, specifically TV. So even Facebook would disagree with him when he promotes Facebook. He's an idiot. I'm sorry, he's not an idiot. That's not fair. What he says in marketing terms is idiocy. I'm sure he's a very smart guy. And, you know, we we all pay a price for this for a long time. Um, and again, look, you know, congratulations to him for building such an amazing business, but it's a business built on bad advice, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a marketing mix for a reason. Um, yeah. And, you know, Adam at Smithfield, who is my, my sort of media agency and always has been since I've been a wee boy, you know, he's always sort of uh, banging on to me about that, just saying, you know, the multiplier effect of exactly right. being cross-channel is, is yeah, is, is far, far bigger. So it'll be, it'll be just you said that. It's key just, point. It's a key point. I, I'm often held up as someone mm. that's anti-Facebook and, you know, Twitter. Not at all. Every media has a place. But the interactive mm. effect of spreading your money across as many tools as your budget allows has been proven again and again and again. And so what it comes down to is, A, there's no such thing as the best medium. You make the choices dependent on strategy. And B, you want to combine as many as possible into a campaign, and to your point, a campaign built around a mix. And and that's exactly not what Gary V says. And because of that, he is is instrumental in spreading the wrong message, which has to be open-mindedness, media neutrality, and integration, diversity. And, and honestly, it's... Um, it is painful to behold um, how much influence he has um, over marketers um, and, and because of exactly that point. There's many other points, but let's just have that point, you know, that not having an open mind towards all media and not looking for a mix. So thinking about that and, and thinking about your, you know, 1930s uh, sort of comment as well, you know, what, is marketing changing then? in the next few years or is it kind of still the same ethos with just some different channels yeah exactly i mean unfortunately you know we we if you go to a conference you'll be told that everything that happened in the past is is now dead and the future is completely different and that's what you know it's the chairman mao strategy you know it's scorched earth because i have no formal training in marketing and i don't really understand it i'm just going to declare it dead and now I'm going to invent a bunch of shit, which actually looks a lot like the old stuff and tell you it's new. 
if these people that are declaring everything dead actually understood the things that they're declaring dead, they'd realize that they have, you know, as much life now as they've ever had before. The channels, the media mix, the tactics certainly change. But predominantly, mm. the discipline of marketing is as the same now as it was in 1930 or even 1900 around the time it came through. And I'll give you a really good example. We are obsessed in this current era with communications. It's not that important. It's really not that important. I mean, I, I give it a, a, a weighting of about 6 to 8% of the overall importance in marketing in the sense that I want to see my proper research being done and tracking. I want a decent target strategy. I want positioning. I need objectives. I need codes. Um, I need the right product architecture. And then what about pricing? You know, what about product development and line extensions? What about distribution and multi-channel? You know, we, we don't talk about these things. We're just obsessed with communication. It's not that important. So I, I, what I wish for most marketers is, to get a broader vision of what marketing is because it will make them much better at their jobs. And, and yeah, I think one of the things that we, we we really do have to work on is that it isn't changing completely. Every Anyone that tells you something is dead is immediately not to be trusted in marketing. The same as mentioning Maslow's hierarchy, right? Well, <laughs> I I've, think I read you saying that one time. <laughs> there are three things that I like to get out of brand plans ASAP. Maslow's is one of them. Literally, the only thing Maslow's teaches you, and everyone gets taught it, and it's the only theory they remember, is that when you want to take a piss, mm -hmm. that's more important than eating. That's literally what it says, okay? And that's not <laughs> useful. That's not useful for 99.9% .9 of marketing challenges. <laughs> and then I think what yeah. SWAT is a total pile of rubbish and is only used by people with bad training. And the pest analysis mm -hmm. that seems to go along with it, like you know gonorrhea and herpes, you get a pest and a SWAT usually on the next slide. And they are signals that, you, you know, the person presenting is well-meaning but doesn't have enough training in marketing. So they're using these tools of a 12-year-old that offer zero value. And, and, and you know, you, you people come along. I sit with, you know, big, fat, important people occasionally and we see presentations and marketing plans. And if we see pest or Maslow, we know that SWAT's, you know, only a few minutes around the corner. And what and what about um, the 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 marketing mix then the, the Kotler stuff the four P's seven P's four hundred P's whatever is that still relevant are people still working to that Yeah, I, I see. I mean, the four P's, which was built out of the early nineteen sixties, again because most people don't understand it. Believe it or not, even it's so simple. If you look at the four P's, they stand up very nicely to the test of time. Even though every numpty has tried yeah. to change them and alter them, right? it's hard to think of anything that isn't either place, distribution, promotion, communications, pricing, or based around the product itself. These are the four mm -hmm. touch points. These are the four uh, areas where we can tactically influence what the consumer gets. And and they're perfect. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't set off making them the, the core of my plan, but they're a nice way to think about marketing before you delve into, right, within – pricing there's issues related to sales promotions blue list pricing actually setting the price value and so on. there are, you know there's a deeper level within each of the p's that branches out but it's a great framework to think about tactics but only tactics which by definition is only a third of marketing if you see what i mean so before you do your four p's if you're well trained you've done your strategy first because your strategy gives you the answers to the, the questions that the four p's raises 
Right, so I'm thinking about time because I know you'll need to, to go in a wee bit. So I was just going to do some quick fire questions yeah. that came from the audience sure. and then a very quick thing on food and drink. So um, from Mr. Jonathan Swain, who uh, is the MD at Fuller's Inns and Hotels, yeah. um, he's written quite a few, um, but we could just go quick fire. So are global brands, consumer brands, consigned to a slow death? No, no, I don't think so. I know what he's getting at. It's, it's that whether the product life cycle actually exists, and I don't believe it does. So there's a terrible belief, and it happens a lot in beer, by the way, that you know a brand rises, becomes popular, and at some point begins to decline in attractiveness. And at that point, you bring out another brand, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've worked on 400-year-old brands, and the trick is when they start to falter, you reinvest in them if you believe in them, and you bring them back. So I'm not saying every brand lives forever, but it's possible for brands – to be managed forever if you get lucky. So, yeah, they're not consigned to an automatic death at some point. I believe some brands can be and indeed are immortal. Well, it's interesting. In the food and drink world in the UK, um, I mean, I, I know you'll know the, the state of the high street over here um, and what's happening, but I asked that question on LinkedIn the other day and I was thinking, how often do you stand over the brand with a defibrillator? you know, ready to punch it again and just see if it will, you know, because there's so many of the brands that are, you know, launching again. Mm. Um, they've, they've brought in, and also they bring in CEOs. It's quite funny with, with, with the industry that we're in. It's almost like, um, you know, English manager sort of syndrome, that there's five or six yeah. English managers that are out of work, but they'll always get a job. Yeah. You know, the Alan Kirbishleys and the Sam Allardyce, you know. And I, can I think it's a bit the same in the industry that we've got? And there's a few at the moment on the comeback trail and you think, actually, should you just, you know, reinvent rather than, um, you know, trying to... Because actually they've they've got quite a lot of baggage with them. So it's going to take them a hell of a long time to get out of that, you know, sort of get out of the red, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is if you look at most brands and there's no absolute rule, the value of awareness is massively understated by almost everyone. So it's true that even when a brand is, I mean, Skoda is the ultimate case here. When Volkswagen got Skoda, I mean, the name, I checked this, I was in Prague last month. The name literally means, I think, slaphead is what it means in Czech or something similar. Is that right? It means something like to strike <laughs> to strike someone in a horrible way and make their face look bad or something, you know. And it had terrible, wow. terrible brand reputation, and yet Volkswagen, you know, they held on to it and rebuilt it. And they asked them why, and they said because it's got so much equity in terms of awareness, and it was spot on. Creating brand awareness, one, you know, one is so overlooked by almost everyone. So it's true that there are two games when you manage a brand. One is generating as high a level of awareness as possible. And that's literally, you know, out of 100, how many people think of your brand when they think of the category? But then, and then mm. the second part is brand image. So they know you exist, but what do they associate with your brand? We're obsessed with that second question, but we missed the first question, which is if you've got a brand that has high levels of awareness among its target market, it'll take you 10 years and hundreds of millions of pounds to build that level of awareness. And so mm. when you really understand brands, you really grow to respect the power of, of pre-existing brands. And that's why you normally fix them rather than creating again. Well, it's funny. Um, again, when we were back at lastminute.com, we used to do, you know, a, a bit of, you know, customer stuff that, you know, Brent wasn't really that supportive of. But, you know, people were still saying that they booked their last holiday with Lynn Polly. 
and yep. it had been shut for ten years. Yep. You know the traveling chain, but it, but it's so much fame um, that it still lived in people's minds. Um, Jonathan also asks: Are we seeing the end of the car as a thing of desire? No, that's easy. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, what growth stock business sector would you invest in? He's obviously got a bit of spare cash. Oh, look, I'd be looking at the cannabis business out of Canada at the moment and oh, yeah. a lot of options. One of the things, again, you learn from looking at long-term data is that it's really unfair. So once a brand is built and gets bigger than the other brands, it has two advantages. One, it, it, it always will have more resources so that it can outshout its smaller rivals. So its share of voice will always match its share of market. So you can't outshout them. And you have to do that. Otherwise, the ratio between your share of voice and share of market is relatively predictive. And second, the biggest uh, input into effectiveness for advertising is, are you already a big brand? So, you know, that's why the game has always been loaded. And when, when an industry like cannabis comes out of the traps like this, if you can pick the right one or two brands, you're, you're going you know, to be on a very big winner. So I think that's the one to watch for, and it's just working out which ones are going to emerge predominant at the end of this process. Maybe they'll get bought, maybe they'll grow, but that's the you know that that for me is the interesting. Oh, space I lost right. you there for a sec. So what happened there was we got cut off. So I think I'd borrowed all my credits from the gods of Wi-Fi and technology to be speaking to Mark for all that time across the internet and having a really good chat. And unfortunately, last five minutes cut off. So um, completely my fault. I should have asked him to hang on at the end of the podcast uh, for the last file to upload. But never mind. So what we missed out really was just a bit of wrapping up, but also the mark out of 10 segment where it's a bit of fun where the guest tells us their bests and one of their worsts. So Mark's was best city to eat in was Tokyo. And I can't blame him at all for that. Best restaurant, I couldn't quite catch the name, but it was one of the great ones in San Sebastian. So Mark might correct me on Twitter or something after this goes out. The best meal and dish was really interesting because it was firmly in the takeaway sector and the QSR side of things, which was eat after he's been travelling. So when he lands in the UK... He really enjoys having breakfast at eat. Best alcoholic drink was Amaretto Sours all day long. Really into that and I could definitely second that thought. Love an Amaretto Sour. And the worst meal was quite a funny one, which was actually at Le Pont de la Tour. It wasn't their fault. Uh, He was warned, but he had lots of oysters and lots of vodka. And apparently that can be an explosive combination. So I really hope you got as much as I did out of that. Real pleasure to speak to the marketing professor of our generation, a real hero. Just keep following him, keep seeing what he's saying. It's always the truth. I think he's an incredible mind, an incredible guy. So thanks again, Mark, for doing that. You know, you really didn't need to, but I was so glad that you said yes. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Thanks so much for listening. Bless you for all of the wonderful comments that we get on a daily basis. Great to see us regular charting now. Huge thanks to Gaz and Gabby for all of their help. And I really hope that everything in this episode gave you some real value 
that will be able to help your brand boom. <laughs>